Last time we met together, we spoke to you from Genesis chapter 44. Tonight, we'd like to look at Genesis chapter 45. Chapter 44 ends with Judah making the longest speech of anyone speaking that's recorded in the book of Genesis. It had to be a, a speech or a talk or a plea that came with much passion. Judah emptied his heart before Joseph. When I say before Joseph, it was, but as far as Judah was concerned, he didn't know it was Joseph. He thought it was the governor of Egypt. He was looking at a person of great power and authority. And the very lies that he and his brothers were in the hand of this governor. But he makes a very passionate plea unto him, not knowing it's Joseph. He mentions his father several times. And what it would do to his father if they didn't return and take Benjamin with them. So 45 starts off with the word then, T-H-E-N. The word then is much like the word therefore. Or, um, you know, uh, wherefore. Wherefore and therefore and then are all words that point us back to something that's just been said. Something that's just been written. Something that's just been stated. And so at this point, we find where Joseph can no longer contain himself. So as it says, then Joseph uh, could not refrain himself before all them that stood by him. The point had come where his brethren now have made basically a full confession. And this is why Joseph dealt with them as he did. Joseph dealt with them with great wisdom. He brought them all the way around to the point to where nothing is left hidden, you might say. Everything has been put out in the open. And you know, that's the way God deals with us. God is a God of chastisement. We hear so much about God being the God of love out in the nominational world out here, and we like to emphasize that. People oftentimes forget that God's a God of chastisement, a God of judgment. But all chastisements to have purpose with it. There should be thoughtfulness with chastisement. There's, uh, chastisement is to bring about improvement. You read in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verse 11, where Paul said that no chasing for the moment seems to be joyful. What few times, very few times, I had to be chasing growing up. Uh, it didn't seem joyful at the time. You know, I didn't see anything to rejoice at all about. But the purpose is, in the end, it'll bring forth the fruitful uh, fr uh, fruits of righteousness, peaceful fruits of righteousness. And this is what we're seeing here, as Joseph dealt with his brethren with divine wisdom. He is chastening them. And you're going to see the peaceful fruits of righteousness to come forth. Again, when you chasten someone, it's be done with the purpose of helping them and improving it. That's why you read in the book of Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4 where before Paul tells fathers to bring up their children and nurture and admonition of the Lord, he tells them to provoke not your children to raft, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. I've seen parents that discipline their children out of anger, out of an impulse, and they needed to be gotten on to and they needed to be chastened, but not in that manner. And that will provoke a child to raft. But you chasten your children with the idea of getting them to understand why they're chastened. 
and to bring about again the fruitful, uh, peaceful fruits of righteousness. When it takes place, it's not a joyful thing. It's not joyful the one being chastened. It's not joyful the one that's having to do the chastening. I, it never made me happy to have to chasten any of our children. I wasn't happy about that. Uh, and I know the old saying is, you know, says one of the parents will say, well, this hurts me more than it hurts you. And what the child doesn't understand is there's not only just physical uh, pain, but there's mental and emotional uh, pain felt in the heart. And the parent that has to chase the child does not rejoice. It hurts them inwardly more, in a, in a sense, than it does the child that's being chastened outwardly and physically. But we see the results here. Uh, Judah now is the spokesman for the brethren, and he puts out a very passionate plea. And we find that Joseph can no longer refrain himself. And he cries out. Notice what he says. He says, Cause every man to go out from me. And there stood no man with him, while Joseph made himself known unto his brethren. Now, Joseph has spoken to his brethren prior to this. He knew them, but they did not know him. And this is a very, very important doctrinal point that's taught throughout the Word of God. When we come to know God, it's not because we have been led to know God by somebody. We come to know God because God makes himself known to us. We look um, in John chapter 6, verses 44 and 45. And the Lord said, No man cometh unto me, except the Father which sent me draw him, and I'll raise him up again at the last day. As it's written in the prophets, they shall all be taught of God. And I make this point from time to time. Only God can teach you in the heart. I'm trying to teach you in the mind that hopefully will have an impact in the heart. But God is the only one that can write his laws in your mind and print them in your heart or write them in your heart and print them in your mind to enable you to know him experientially. There's intellectual knowledge. There's experiential knowledge. You look in uh, Matthew chapter 7, verses 22 and 23, and you'll find where there were those on that, in that day that told Jesus, says, Have we not cast out devils in thy name? Have we not done many wonderful works in thy name? And Jesus replied back to them, and he told them, he says, Depart from me, ye workers of iniquity, for I never knew you. They were using his name. They said they were doing good things in his name. But Jesus says, I never knew you. And you know the Lord knew who they were. He knew all about them. But there's a way in which the Lord did not know them. Look in John chapter 16. And you'll find where the Lord is telling his disciples that they will cast you out of the synagogues. And the day will come, it says, when they shall kill you and think that they do God's service. He said, because they do have not known the Father nor me. He says, now they'll think they're doing God's service when they treat you this way, but they're treating you this way because they have not known the Father and they've not known me. Everybody doesn't know the Lord. I believe you know the Lord to come out here on a Wednesday night like this. And that's what a wonderful blessing it is to, to know the Lord. You have a living relationship with the Lord that he established and able you to know him, you see. He wrote his laws in your mind and printed them in your hearts. And there's an experiential type knowledge uh, sometimes that God gives us also, like you take uh, how he dealt with Nathaniel in John chapter 1. 
In John chapter 1, the Lord comes where Nathanael's at and says, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no guile. And Nathanael was astonished that the Lord called him by name. And then the Lord took notice of him. He says, How knowest thou me? Notice the word know. And the Lord said, When thou was under the fig tree, I knew thee. When you were under the fig tree, Nathanael, I knew you then. But you didn't know me. And then Nathanael, of course, cried out, My Lord and my God, thou art the king of Israel. In Luke chapter 24, we find where the Lord, after his resurrection, was walking the road with those two disciples on the way to Emmaus. And their eyes were holding. And they actually entered into conversation, not knowing it was the Lord Jesus Christ that was walking with them. They called him a stranger. Are they not a stranger in these parts? Know not what's been going on in these places, you know? The Lord purposely did not allow them to know him in this manner, in this way, until it was his time to do so. And that's when they reached a certain point. The Lord made like he would go on a little further. It was evening time, and they constrained him to come in. And when they did, he came in, and they supped together. But the Lord Jesus Christ revealed himself to them, and he vanished out of their sight. And they said, did not our hearts burn within us while he was yet with us? Uh, what a wonderful blessing it was. You know, when Mary came to the sepulcher in John chapter 20, she comes to the sepulcher early in the morning on the first day of the week. And the sepulcher was empty. And Jesus kind of came up behind her and spoke to her. and She thought he was the gardener. She did not know him until he revealed himself to her. So we see this uh, happening oftentimes with the Lord. And we come to Matthew chapter 11. Uh, verse uh, 27, I believe it is, and the Lord Jesus Christ says here, says, No man knoweth the Son, save the Father, and no man knoweth the Father, save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him to. It takes the Lord to reveal himself to someone. First of all, in regeneration, but then after that, even in our experience with him here. So we see here where Joseph says, he cried out, caused every man to go out from me. And there stood no man with him while Joseph made himself known unto his brethren. Now notice here, you got the expression, every man. And you got the expression, no man. Caused every man to go out. Now, here's a clear example of how the word every and the word all and the word world, when it's used, does not always mean without exception. Joseph said, cause every man to go out. After that happened, no man stood with him, but Joseph's brethren are still there. If you take the expression, cause every man to go out, his brethren or men, they were still there. Obviously, the every man did not include Joseph's brethren, you see. Now, normally every man may mean everybody without exception. But sometimes it means everybody without distinction. Now, the officer, or whoever it was that Joseph gave the command, understood that he wanted everybody out of the room except him and his brother. He understood that. If he didn't, he just started rounding Joseph's brother up and say, hey, you got to get out of here. Joseph said, cause every man to leave and go out. But his brother stayed. And only Joseph remained with his brethren. When his brother looked upon him, they saw what? No man. Kind of reminds me of that experience of the Lord Jesus Christ on the mountain of transfiguration. When he went up there, he took Peter, James, and John with him. And when he got on top of the mountain of transfiguration, he was transfigured, you know, 
in their midst. And we find where Moses and Elias also appeared with him on that mount. And Peter spoke up and said, Lord, it's good for us to be here. Let us build three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elias. But the voice of the Father rang out from heaven saying, uh, This is my beloved Son, hear ye him. It was no time to be building tabernacles for men. <laughs> no time to be giving equal honor unto men uh, that you gave give to the Lord Jesus Christ, you see. And the apostles were struck down. And when they looked up, the Bible says they saw no man. <laughs> well, they saw Jesus, but they saw no man with Jesus. And Joseph's brother now, when they look up, they see Joseph, but they don't see no other man with Joseph. They're all out of the way. They're all out of the picture now. It's just them and Joseph. But at this point, they see a governor, an Egyptian governor with power and authority. They don't know it's Joseph. Joseph cannot refrain himself. He calls every man to go out from him. There stood no man with him, while Joseph made himself known unto his brethren. Now, he's going to acquaint himself with them. And he wept aloud, and Egyptians in the house of Pharaoh heard. Now, we're not just talking about somebody whimpering. We're not talking about somebody just shedding a few tears, and you might be close by and hear their voice. He's weeping so loud that people on the outside of the house hear Joseph weeping. His brethren are before him. He loves them. He shows great compassion to them. He's weeping so loud. People on the outside, they hear him. The Egyptians heard him. The house of Pharaoh heard him. And Joseph said to his brethren, I am Joseph. <laughs> I'm positive you could heard a pin drop. Can you imagine? And you'd have to imagine being one of his brethren, and all of a sudden this man that's standing before you for the second time, that you see him as the governor of Egypt, governor of all the land, with power and authority, your lives are in his hand, and he says, I am Joseph. They were speechless. That's understandable, isn't it? You know why they were speechless? Because they were guilty. They were men guilty standing before Joseph. And this reminds me of what Paul teaches us in Romans chapter 3 concerning the depravity of man. We find where Paul, beginning in verse 9, going all the way down through verse 23, he says, we all shall stand guilty before God. They're standing guilty before Joseph. They know they're guilty. Joseph knows they're guilty. And no doubt they must have thought, well, how does this man know our brother's name? How could he know our brother's name is Joseph? And why would he be claiming to be Joseph? <laughs> well, Joseph reveals himself to them. I am Joseph. Doth not my father yet live? And his brother could not answer him. <laughs> Again, speechless. They stood before this powerful man, speechless. And they were troubled at his presence I can see that. I can understand that. They're, 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 they're taken back. It's an amazing event right here. As this man tells them, he is their brother. The last time they saw their brother Joseph, Ishmaelites had him going out of sight, taking the direction of Egypt, and they have felt like since that time that Joseph somewhere along the line has died, and now all of a sudden this man standing before them reveals himself to them as their brother. He is Joseph, and he's the governor of Egypt. <laughs> oh, what a, 
what an interesting situation we have here. This scene, if you can just put it in your mind. And Joseph said unto his brother, now notice this, come near to me. They were puzzled. They were troubled at his presence. Now, no doubt thinking what's coming next. <laughs> They've been treated a little bit roughly, you know, prior to this time, right? I mean, in our eyes, it looked like they were treated roughly. But as I said, this was just Joseph exercising divine wisdom and chasing his brothers and judging them for what they had done. And now he's brought them full circle. Now he's brought them to him. They make confession. They've revealed their iniquities. They revealed their wrongdoings. But Joseph says, come unto me. Does that sound familiar to you? Does that sound like something the Lord might have said in Matthew 11, 28 and 29? Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light, and you shall find rest unto your soul. That's the last thing in the world, I'm sure, the brethren thought they'd hear come to the lips of this man. <laughs> when they, they knew what they had done to this boy, this man now, he was a 17-year-old boy when they did what they did to him. A young man, yes, but 17 years old. And now that 17-year-old is 39 years old. <laughs> and he has the power, he has the authority. <laughs> Their lives are in his hand. And he says, come unto me. <laughs> Just come unto me. Just like the Lord Jesus Christ did. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. Are we worthy to come unto the Lord Jesus Christ? Are we worthy to be able to come unto the Savior? Uh, and, uh, can you consider how we transgressed against Jesus? When you consider what we've done in our lifetime that's displeased him, that's, that's hurt him, uh, you know, uh, if we all just honest with ourselves here, no matter how much we try, we still fall short, we still fail. And so many times in our lives, we have indeed transgressed against the Savior who loved us much, he died for us. But the Lord says, come unto me. Come unto me. Come near to me, I pray you. And they came near and he said, I'm Joseph, your brother, whom you saw into Egypt. Now, therefore, be not grieved nor angry with yourselves that you sold me thither. For the Lord did send me before you to preserve life. Notice what Joseph said. The Lord did send me. All the way through Joseph's life, you'll never find Joseph to be boastful. You don't find him bragging. I mean, he went from a, a pit all the way to, to the governor's seat, the second in command in all the land of Egypt. But he always gave God the glory for it. Remember when he had his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim? He named one Manasseh, which means God made me to forget all my toil and all my affliction. And the second one he named uh, Ephraim, which means uh, God has made me to be fruitful, caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. Yes, he become very fruitful. But he says, God enabled me to do that. It was God who made me fruitful. It's God who made me to forget. It takes the grace of God sometimes to put things in the past. And Joseph had done that. Oh, he remembered that. <laughs> I'm quite sure Joseph remembered being put in that pit. I'm quite sure he heard his voice. He can remember hearing his brother's voices uh, when they were doing all of that, showing no love but hatred and envy toward him. And no doubt he heard the transaction taking place between Judah and the Ishmaelites as they sold him uh, for those pieces of silver and sent him away and out of their sight. I'm sure he remembered all that. But we see him to be a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ from the standpoint of his compassion and his forgiveness. When you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, 
you'll find seven times in those Gospels where it says specifically that Jesus had compassion. Jesus was a man of compassion. He had compassion on the multitudes there in the last uh, part of Matthew chapter 9. Looked out over the multitudes and saw uh, they were like uh, sheep. You know, they were hungry and they were faint. And he told his disciples that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest. He might send forth the laborers into the vineyard. He had compassion on the multitudes because they were in a, a fainting condition. We find where Jesus had compassion on individuals. Seven different times again. You'll find specifically where it says the Lord had compassion on different people, different individuals, on the multitudes, etc. And here we see a picture, I think, of the Lord in Joseph's life, a man of compassion. It took compassion to say what he did. It took compassion to do what he did. Notice again, he says, Now therefore be not grieved nor angry yourselves that you sow me thither. Oh, you sow me thither, all right. <laughs> no question about that. For God did send me before you to preserve life. Now, we're going to see that word preserve used again in a couple of verses, but notice how it's used the first time. God did send me before you to preserve life. Not your life, but life. The lives of the Egyptians was preserved by God sending Joseph down there. Had they not known the seven years of plenty was going to be followed by seven years of famine, they would have all perished in the land. Not only they, but other nations. It wasn't just Jacob and his sons that came down there to buy food at the hand of Joseph. Other nations came down there to buy food at the hands of Joseph. The Egyptians were given food by Joseph. He managed uh, the seven years of plenty where it would carry him through the seven years of famine. God sent him to preserve life, period, on this earth. For these two years hath the famine been in the land, and yet there are five years in which there shall neither be earing nor harvest. He says, yes, it's been two years of famine, five more is coming. And God sent me before you to preserve you. Now we got that word used a second time. Aren't you glad you believe in a God that can preserve? I love the 121st Psalm. You know, David writes that Psalm. He says, I look unto the hills which cometh my help. My help cometh from the Lord who made heaven and also the earth. He says, he that keepeth you shall neither sleep nor slumber. Now I have to have a, some sleep and and you do too, and, and sometimes people come to church to slumber. They had sleep the night before. They have slumber when they get here. Uh, you know how that works. But anyway, uh, uh, the Lord doesn't sleep, and the Lord doesn't slumber. He doesn't. And it says, For he shall preserve thee, he shall keep thy soul, he shall preserve thy soul, he shall preserve thy going out and thy coming in. Every day when you go out of the house to go to work, and when you come back in at the end of the day, do you ever give thought to the fact that God preserved me another day? That God has kept me another day? That God has, uh, uh, you know, protected me another day? Sometimes you realize when you've had a close call out on the highway, but how many times has God taken care of you and you just simply don't recognize it, don't acknowledge it? Uh, uh, tonight we need to acknowledge that God preserves our going out and our comings in, you see. He's our keeper, is he not? He doesn't sleep. He doesn't slumber. Sometimes you may call somebody, you may wake them up. You've never called God and woke him up. <laughs> You've never called God and God sounded a little drowsy on the other end of the phone, you know. I know this preacher, and uh, if he's already gone to bed, 
and, you know, and laid down and gone to bed and asleep. And if somebody calls, he won't answer the phone until he actually gets up out, out of the bed on his feet and he picks up the phone. Hello? <laughs> That's the truth. <laughs> You're not going to catch him in the bed. <laughs> Sometimes people call me and they say, I didn't know if I got you, uh, woke you up, got you out of bed. I said, I wish. Uh, yeah, I'd like somebody sometime or another to be able to do that. I wish I could sleep long enough where somebody would call me when they thought I'd be up and I wouldn't be up. I'd still be in the bed. That just doesn't happen anymore. It used to, but it don't happen anymore. But anyway, God doesn't sleep, slumber and he doesn't sleep. He preserves his people. And Joseph here used that word twice. He sent me before you to preserve life. He sent me before you to preserve you a posterity. God had not forgotten that. He promised a Messiah. He promised a Messiah to come into this world and it would come through the Hebrew nation. If the Hebrews do not know anything about the seven years of famine, they shall perish off this land like everybody else. But God sent Joseph ahead of time in his providence. Never forget... That God in his omnipotent power and his great wisdom is a God of providence and he overrules and he overrides. And the Lord can bring good out of evil. But God's not the author of evil. God's not the author of sin. God is not the author of all the wickedness and evil that goes on upon in this earth. But I thank God tonight that he's on his throne ruling and reigning and he can intervene in any situation and deliver us and bring something good out of it. There's no question about that. We notice in verse 8, well, let's back to verse 7 again. God sent me before you to preserve your posterity earth and to save your lives by great deliverance. This is not an ordinary deliverance here, brethren. This is a great deliverance. I'm glad we got a great God. I'm glad we got a great, great Savior. I'm glad we got a God who can bring about a great deliverance in our lives. I, I like to read 2 Corinthians chapter 1 in verse 10 where he says, uh, that we should trust in him who hath delivered us from so great a death and doth deliver. And whom we trust, he will yet deliver. Uh, God delivered us from so great a death when Christ died on the cross. But how many times has God delivered us presently in this time world? Day after day after day. And we trust he'll deliver us in the future. Not only while we're living here, but he's going to deliver us out of this world one day when he resurrects our bodies, you see. He's a great deliverer, is he not? So it was not you that sent me hither. No, they didn't send him. They sold him, all right. He said, but it's not you that sent me, but God. And he hath made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. Haste ye, that means be in a hurry. Haste ye and go up to my father and say unto him, Thus saith my son Joseph, God hath made me lord of all Egypt. Come down unto me, tarry not. And thou shalt dwell in the land of Goshen, and thou shalt be near unto me, thou and thy children, thy children's children, thy flocks and thy herds, and all that thou hast. And there will I nourish thee, for yet there are five years of famine, lest thou and thy household, and all that thou hast come to poverty. And behold, your eyes shall see in the eyes of my brother Benjamin, and it's my mouth that speaketh unto you. And ye shall tell my father of all my glory in Egypt, and all that ye have seen. And ye shall haste and bring down my father thither. And he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept upon his neck. Moreover, he kissed all his brethren and wept upon them. And after that, his brethren talked with him. Now, as I read all that, and some of you reading with me, surely you see again a picture of great compassion. You see a picture of great love. You see a picture of emotion. You see a picture of forgiveness. 
Does this, has, Jesus, has Joseph not made a statement here about forgiveness? Listen, his brother had committed a great evil. And we are great sinners. We are sinners and we are great sinners. We have a great debt. Therefore, we need a great God and a great Savior to deliver us from that great debt, do we not? You know, in the book of Hebrews chapter 2, it says, Therefore, let us give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard. Let us at any time we should let them slip. For how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? I'm telling you, we have a great salvation wrought out by a great God, which we stood in need of because we are great sinners. Our debts are great. Our transgressions are great. And we need a great Savior with great love to deliver us with His great power. And that's exactly what Joseph did. When you consider, if you hadn't forgotten already, all they did to Joseph, how they envied him, how they hated him, how they uh, wouldn't even speak to him. And that's a point I want to make right here. If you go back to Genesis chapter 37, it says they could not speak peaceably unto him. But notice this. And after that, his brethren talked with him. Wonder why that's in there. <laughs> and after this, his brethren talked with him. Have communication. They have fellowship. Fellowship's been restored. Isn't that great when fellowship is restored? Uh, it's terrible when fellowship is broken between a husband and a wife, between parents and children, between neighbors, and especially with brothers and sisters in the house of God. That should never be, my friends. But when things uh, uh, reverse and when things have been taken care of properly and biblically and scripturally, and then fellowship has been restored, reconciliation has taken place, it's a time of rejoicing, isn't it? Notice what the next verse here says. I don't know what all they talked about. We're not given the details. But somehow I know, I just believe his brother said something like this. We're sorry. <laughs> you reckon? <laughs> We're sorry. <laughs> we should never have done that. Uh, you know, uh, how they're being treated is beyond, uh, uh, it's not what the natural man does, you see. It's not, it's not something by nature that you'd be willing to do this these men mistreated him as badly as a person can be mistreated. And what does Joseph do? He loves them. He kisses them. He, he tells them not to think hard about themselves for what took place. And the fame thereof was heard in Pharaoh's house, saying, Joseph's brother will come. And it pleased Pharaoh well and his servants. Now even Pharaoh is happy about it. Pharaoh said unto Joseph, Say to thy brother, This do ye, laid your beast and go, get you to the land of Canaan. And take your father and your households and come unto me and I'll give you the good of the land of Egypt and ye shall eat the fat of the land. Now thou art commanded, this do ye, take ye wagons out of the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives and bring your father and come and regard not your stuff for the good of all the land of Egypt is yours. Now normally I don't think too much about anything good about Egypt, okay? But down in Egypt was a, part, was a piece of land called Goshen. Goshen was fertile. Goshen was fruitful. It was the best land in the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh says to Joseph, send all these wagons and all these things back there. Get your father and your brother and bring them down here. And the fat of the land is yours. The fat of the land is yours. The good news is being shared. This reminds me so much of Luke chapter 15 in the New Testament. In Luke chapter 15, you got the man who lost one out of a, a ten sheep. Remember that? A hundred sheep. He had a hundred sheep and he lost one. And he went, he searched, and he found the one sheep out of the one hundred. What did he do? He went and called his neighbors, right? He went and called his neighbors and shared the good news of it. And they all were happy about it. And then there was a woman who had ten pieces of silver. And she lost one out of the ten pieces of silver. What did she do? 
she looked diligently for it, meant a lot to her, it was valuable to her, she found it, and then what did she do? She went and told her neighbors about it, and they all rejoiced about it. You know, when you're happy, you ought to want to share that happiness, shouldn't you? A happiness is contagious, just try it sometime. <laughs> Joy is contagious, just try it sometime. You say, well, I don't know if it is or not. That's because you ain't never been as happy as you ought to be. You ain't never been as joyful as you ought to be. If somebody's around me and they're happy, the next thing you know, I got a smile on my face. Even Pharaoh was happy about it. They shared in the joy. This is Luke 15 here in Genesis chapter 45. And the children of Israel did so, and Joseph gave. I want you to see what Joseph gave. And the children of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them wagons according to the commandment of Pharaoh. He gave them provision for the way. To all of them he gave, that's the third time the word gave is used. To all of them he gave each man changes of raiment. But to Benjamin he gave 300 pieces of silver and five changes of raiment. The 300 pieces of silver is 15 times the amount he was sold for. He gives away 15 times the amount that he was sold for. He gave ten of his brothers changes of raiment, but he gave Benjamin five. <laughs> and to his father, he sent after this manner, ten asses laden with the good things of each of them, ten she asses laden with corn and bread and meat for his father, by the way. So he sent his brethren away, and they departed, and he said to them, See that ye fall not out by the way. Now listen. They said, Regard not your stuff. You know, one of the problems I have in life, I regard my stuff too highly. And everything, to me, everything I have is nothing but stuff. That's just all it is. When you compare material possessions to our eternal inheritance, it's just stuff. That's all it is. Uh, that's why people hoard. They just love stuff all the time. Uh, you know, uh, if you build a garage, I mean, an outdoor building out there to hold your stuff, you never build it about half as big as you should. First thing you know, it's all filled up. You got to get rid of that and get a bigger one. Get rid of that and get a bigger one. It's just all stuff. When you compare what we have in life, my friends, it's just stuff. Don't let stuff <laughs> distract you. Don't let stuff, uh, you know, cause you to stumble. Don't let stuff get in your way. There's something better. There's something more important than stuff in this world. And God is the one who gives it to us. Look in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 7. And Paul says, Eye hath not seen and ear hath not heard, neither into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for them that love him. Joseph has something prepared for his father and his brethren and their wives. And he wants them to be where he's at. Did you know there's coming a day, brethren, when we're going to be where Jesus is at, right? That's what Jesus said in John 14. As Joseph here told his brothers not to be grieved, what did Jesus tell his disciples in John 14? He said, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. For my Father's house are many mansions. Not so, I'd have told you so. Now I go to prepare a place for you, that where I am, there ye may be also. Joseph wants Jacob, his father. He wants his brother and their family to be where he's at. And he's got a place for them. They don't have to worry about where they're going to live. Joseph then took care of all of that, you see. There's not one single solitary thing that Jacob and his sons did in order to be able to go down to Egypt and go and occupy that land that Joseph uh, set aside for them, Joseph took care of it all. I'm glad that Jesus took care of it all, aren't you? 
We sing to him, Jesus paid it all, all to him we owe. Do you sing that with feeling? Do you sing that with enthusiasm and emotion? Understanding the words that you're saying, Jesus paid it all. He didn't pay some of it, or most of it. He paid it all, did he not? All to him we owe. Joseph, my friend, supplied the compassion. He supplied the love. He supplied the forgiveness. He supplied the, the wagons. He supplied the, the corn and the bread and the dates and the raisins and all of that. He supplied the means of transportation and then gave them commission there to go and get his father and the families and bring them back down there to the land of Goshen. And then he tells them, notice this. He says, fall not out by the way. You know what he's telling there? Don't let the devil get among you now. Uh, on the way back home, don't start blaming one another for what took place. Don't start to pointing fingers one another. Fall not out by the way. You wouldn't think brother would fall out with one another, would you? <laughs> Unfortunately, I've seen that happen on more than one occasion when brethren fell out with each other and usually over the most unimportant, insignificant, irrelevant things you could possibly think about. No wonder why that's in there. Why would he put that in there? See that you fall not out by the way. What he's telling here is this. This matter is settled. This matter is settled. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When you pray to God and ask for forgiveness, you make your confession, you ask for forgiveness. God hears your confession, he gives you forgiveness, and the matter is settled. God will not bring it up again. And you shouldn't bring it up again. If God's satisfied with it, you need to be satisfied with it. Now let's look at this closing scene. And he went up out of Egypt. As always, when people departed Egypt, it says they went up, out, went up out of Egypt. It could have read like this. And they left Egypt. They left Egypt, didn't they? And it would have took up less words. I've always heard you need to use less words to express yourself if you can. Well, sometimes God does, sometimes God doesn't. God didn't use less words here because he wanted us to get the impact of this. And they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan unto Jacob their father, and told him, saying, Joseph is yet alive. You remember a while ago, when Joseph made himself known to his brother, and he said, I am Joseph. And we emphasized how, what an impact that must have had in their thinking, their feelings, their emotions, for this man that they thought was a governor, all of a sudden to reveal himself as their brother, and says he's Joseph. Now let's put ourselves in the, footstep, in the, in the shoes of Jacob. When they get back and Jacob could see him coming, I'm sure he probably started counting. Remember, when they left, they had Benjamin. Simeon had been left down there. He counts 11 sons. Oh, that made him happy. But then he saw wagons. They didn't leave with wagons, come back with wagons. Where, where, are they, where are they coming from? What's all these wagons doing? I'm sure it was puzzling in his mind. And then when they get there, they say to the father, <laughs> Joseph is yet alive. And he is governor of all the land of Egypt. And Jacob's heart fainted, for he believed them not. <laughs> How much good news can a man handle at one time? And especially an old man. <laughs> one of these days when I uh, get in that category, you know, uh, I, maybe I can understand that. How much good news can one person handle at one time? How many times have you made this expression? 
when things were not going good. And you say, it's just like it's one thing right after another. But and when you say that, it's bad news. Have you ever said it when it was good news? Have you ever got so much good news you're just telling somebody about it and say, you know, it's just one thing after another. I never have experienced that. Well, maybe I have and just didn't think about saying it that way. If I'm going to say it's just one thing after another with bad news, I need to be willing to say it's one thing after another with good news. Right? How much good news can an old man take? See, in his mind, in Jacob's mind, Joseph was just as dead as if Joseph was dead. His feelings, his emotions wouldn't have been any worse, any more grievous. And if Joseph literally was dead, in his mind, he just knew Joseph was dead. It's now like Joseph has been resurrected from the dead. Joseph has been resurrected from the dead. And he caused his heart to faint. That's part of the gospel message, brethren. When you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says, uh, you know, according to the scripture, we preached unto you how Christ died for our sins. And also according to scriptures, how he was buried and rose again. The main theme of the preaching of the apostles in the book of Acts, as you trace it in there, was the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm telling you, when God blesses you to have a fresh remembrance of the resurrection of Christ, when you feel in your heart and you can understand in your mind that the Savior, my friends, that loved you, that suffered for you, that bled for you, that died for you, and was put in a barred tomb for three days and three nights, and he came out on the other side in order to cause your heart to faint in a good way. Right? <laughs> I'm feeling fainting right now just about <laughs> In order to cause your heart to faint, it was just too good to be true. I tell you, I, I'm standing in need tonight of some good news that's too good to be true. I've heard so much bad news in the last two years. Just bring it on, my friends. I, I'll take all the good news uh, that you can give me. Sometimes somebody say, Brother Lawrence, you want to hear some good news? <laughs> Are you kidding me? <laughs> yes. <laughs> what a no-brainer. I tell you, it's some good news last night. You can figure out what I'm talking about later. But anyway, I'm, I'm ready. <laughs> I'm ready for all the good news you got. If each one of you here tonight has got something good, some good news, I'll stand out there to midnight tonight and talk to every one of you leaving this place. I'll take enough time for you to come by one by one and tell me something good. <laughs> I tell you, I need something to counterbalance the, the evil and the wickedness of this world. I need something to counterbalance, my friends, all the bad reports, the evil reports that, that come across the, the TV screen on a regular basis. I need some good news. I need some glad tidings. And there's nothing better in this world than to get a fresh dose of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. His heart, Jacob fainted. His heart fainted, for you believed him not. And then... What turned the tide? They told him all the words of Joseph. That's like all the words of Jesus. That's what we try to do when we read the scripture. We'll read all the words of Jesus, do we not? They read all the words of Joseph, which he'd said unto them. And when he saw the wagons which Joseph had sent to carry him, and the spirit of Jacob their father revived, he went from a fainting position to a spirit of revival. He, he heard the message. It was too good to be true. He saw the wagons. <laughs> He heard all the words of Joseph. And by the time he got through all that, that heart that had fainted had now been revived. I'm going to tell you about six days of this world, about all I can take. And when I come to the house of God, I like to leave revived, don't you? 
I, I believe in revival, my friends. Uh, uh, the other night, uh, uh, me and Brother uh, Chris uh, McCool, we were going through the drive-thru to get something to eat, and the lady said, well, what kind of day have you had? I said, we've had a great day. I said, we've had a great weekend. We've been having a revival right up the road. And about the time I was going to invite her, she turned around and closed the window and helped somebody else. <laughs> the devil's always sneaking in there, isn't he, at the 11th hour. That's what we had. We had a revival last weekend. But I, I look forward to 52 revivals a year. Six days of the world is about all I can handle. And then we find where Joseph, Joseph said, it's enough. Joseph, my son, is yet alive. And it, it, it's, it's just no way in the world I can possibly understand what this man went through. What he went through for a long period of time and years, thinking his son... That he gave the many co coat of many colors to was dead. And then to get this unbelievable report that he's alive. And not only alive, he's a governor of, of Egypt down there. And here are the wagons they've sent to get me and take me back. And Joseph, excuse me, Jacob finally says, it's enough. The evidence was sufficient. I like to see God's people uh, reach a point in their experience, brother, when it comes to the church. When they finally say, it's enough. I've heard this wonderful gospel story enough that I believe it's a, a, it indeed is true. It's fed my heart. It's fed my soul. It's lifted me up and strengthened me and given me courage to face a, another day in this old world here. I want to be part of it. It's, it's enough. I'm ready to come down the aisle. It's enough. I'm ready to take that step. It's enough. Are you that way tonight? Have you had enough to be able to say this is enough? What more could you ask for? All these provisions that Joseph made for his brethren. What more could you ask for? And then he said, I'll go and see him before I die. You know, there's some things, brother, you need to do before you die. You know that? You might be somebody you need to go see and make amends with before you die. It might be somebody you just need to go and say, I want to tell you something. I want to let you know I love you. You need to do that before you die. Sometimes people hang around, hang around the old, old church. First thing you know, they leave this world, they never have joined. I'm telling you, you need to unite with the Lord's church before you die. When you die, there are no more opportunities. Think about that. If there's something you think that you need to do before you die, do it. Do it. If you need to tell your wife how much you love her, you tell her. You got some children you need to tell you love them, you, you tell them. You tell them and don't think there may be another opportunity another day down the road because one day it won't be. Jacob said, it's enough. I'm going down to Egypt. I'm going to see my son. He's alive.